The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Great to see everybody with us tonight. We're looking forward to tonight's conversation. We had a great time with tonight's guest. Uh, It was about hmm, three months ago, almost three months ago, the end of July, we had Brad Schreiber on. We talked about his book, Music is Power. We also talked about his book as it related to uh, Patty Hearst, Revolution's End, and the SLA. Uh, We had a great time talking about a lot of things. We ran out of time before we ran out of topics. And we knew right then and there we had to schedule session two of our conversation. And we did that for tonight. So uh, I'm looking forward to bringing Brad in in just a little bit. And we'll be talking about hidden history tonight. Brad has written a lot about things uh, that might not be the way they seem in the history books. So we'll be, uh, we'll be talking about a bunch of different things. It's going to be a conversation that's going to cover a lot of ground. But it's going to be very interesting all of the way. I do want to thank everybody for hanging out last night. We had a best of a BRR classic program on. And when I decided that um, I needed to take the night off, I uh, chose that specific program for a reason. So for those of you who have uh, who listened to the program, listened to last night's interview, it was with uh, Randall Sullivan. Randall's an author who's written a bunch of stuff, but most importantly, at least for uh, us on this program and what we talked to him about, was his book about Oak Island. And many of you know that The Curse of Oak Island on the History Channel is a program I've watched for several seasons. I think I don't think I watched it religiously the first two seasons. But I did catch up. I think I watched those on demand. And then since then, I've watched it every, every year. And we're uh, about to see season eight premiere. And that's why I chose that particular interview with Randall Sullivan. Because Randall not only wrote a book about Oak Island and its mysteries and its history, but he also spent time with the Lagina brothers and their effort through the television show, The Curse of Oak Island, to uh, discover what what happened on Oak Island and if there's any treasure still there, if there ever was any treasure there. So Rick and Marty Lagina will be continuing that effort. They actually already have. We'll start to see what they found or what they did in uh, season eight and it debuts or premieres November 10th. We get to start watching this again. So I will be watching. I'm looking forward to it, even though the last couple of seasons have been rather disappointing. I mean, they did, they did some very, very major, major work there. You know, the coffer dam around Smith's Cove, you know, forgive me if, if you haven't seen the program, you don't know what I'm talking about, but, uh, the coffer dam around Smith's Cove, they found some interesting things. I just felt like they never really tied it together for us. I don't know, uh, which tells me that those were probably searcher efforts and not anything original. Uh, they did some major digging and uh, drilling in the money pit area. They did a lot of things. They didn't really find much of anything, which is starting to make me a bit more pessimistic about the idea that they may discover something ultimately. However, Season 10 premieres in just, uh, well, what, two, three weeks, I guess it is. It's the week right after Election Day. And I am sh- sh- certain by then we are going to want some distractions. <laughs> I, I think m- many of us already do. <laughs> anyway, again, the Curse of Oak Island uh, premiering season eight, 
November 10th on the History Channel. I will be watching it. If you don't, I will be discussing it on the program. Just briefly, I like to tell people after I've watched it, maybe, you know, what I thought of it. When Jason was on the program, we talked about it quite a bit after, you know, after after an episode aired, we would chat about it on the show because we both enjoyed it. Are we in for more of nothing or will this be the the uh, year and the season that they find the answers? Um, we'll find out. All right. We're going to go to break. When we come back, Brad will be with us. It's beyond reality and we will be right back. Hey, gang, JV here. You know that great nutrition can lead to a great life. Healthy, happy, rewarding. But that nutrition simply cannot be found in the foods we eat alone. Take a minute and assess your health, the way you feel, the way your family feels, the way your kids feel. Health is more than just feeling well. It's also making sure you have a strong immune system, especially in these trying times. Vitamins aren't enough alone. In fact, they have to be the right vitamins, the right supplements made from the most effective ingredients. Otherwise, they don't do the job. It makes the world of a difference. There's a new website you can visit that'll help you navigate these ideas and guide you to better health. There's no obligation. Just visit MyHealthRocksNow.com. That's MyHealthRocksNow.com and start feeling better today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're looking forward to a great conversation with returning guest and good friend Brad Schreiber. Brad, of course, is an author, but he's been a writer in all media, as well as a producer, an executive, a director, a consultant, and an actor. He's done it all, which is one of the reasons we have so much to talk about. Brad, welcome back to the show. It's so great to have you back with us. Thank you so much, JV. It's a delight to be back with you. And may I just say that... If I Can't Have You is a perfect song for the um, Biden campaign. If I can't have you, I don't want nobody, baby. <laughs> you know what's fun? I was I was uh, kind of doing the intro segment here, and I was starting to think back about our conversation in July. Right. And I realized that you and I covered so much ground in our conversation, yet we had so much left on the table that we needed to talk about that uh, I think at the end of that conversation, we both said, hey, you know, we gotta we got to schedule something soon here because we got to pick this up where we left off. I'd love that. I'd love to talk about the hidden history in my writing, but I also uh, would love to talk in general about what's going on in the U.S. in terms of information, how people come to conclusions about what is real and what is not. We are uh, going through... I'm not even sure what to call it because it's it's a bit of an evolution. It's a bit of a revolution. It's also a bit of a, a a kind of an upheaval of how information is not only disseminated but how it's presented and through what filters it's presented. And there's a lot to kind of dissect here. I'm not so sure we've got we've got um, even the ability to offer too many answers, but I'm sure we have some insight. I don't want to go there yet, though, if you don't mind. I'd like to touch on a couple of other things just to kind of tidy up our conversation from last time before Absolutely. we before we venture sure. into new territory. First thing I have to ask you, mm-hmm. um, did you think for a minute back in whatever it was, July 29th, when you and I were talking, that we would be here three months later still dealing with 
lockdown, still dealing with virus, still dealing with basically um, a lifestyle change that I don't think any of us could have ever predicted, uh, you know, as we entered this year we call 2020. Well, I knew that based on the nature of the coronavirus and the fact that it is worldwide, that we would be dealing with it longer. What probably amazes me the most is that there are still so many people in this country who do not believe in science and would rather side with a politician who is incredibly ignorant of facts than side with all of the scientists on the globe who all agree with the nature of transmission and the way to block that transmission. Let me ask you, just because I'm curious, and we've had some folks on this program that have you know, talked, on both, talked about both this, this issue from both perspectives. So I'm curious as to what you think. Um, some people say that we have to allow this in some fashion to work its way through the population so that we can start to develop some natural immunities to it. If we don't do that, uh, we can't necessarily rely on a vaccine um, then we'll never get out of the woods. And then other people say, no, that's crazy. What you need to do is try to stop it as best you can. And what? What happens then? The vaccine comes or it, it like so many other viruses in the past, kind of just runs its course and disappears? Well, look, Sweden already has advocated the idea of what you're talking about, JV, which is herd immunity, right. which you let the virus go through the population and people develop antibodies to fight it. It has failed in Sweden, okay? So I think that if we care about science and we care about indisputable facts, we'd have to say to ourselves, that's not the right approach. So uh, as viruses mutate, they often become weaker. I actually am somewhat optimistic about the winter because there are less people congregating together in Mm -hmm. large groups. Um, probably a lot of people will be reticent about flying to see grandma and grandpa around the holidays. Right. And hopefully there will be time to uh, have the virus actually lessen because there are less people spreading it about. I mean, I can't really, I can't really stand up and act arrogant about this because there was a huge party in the Hollywood Hills a few miles from my house mm-hmm. here in Studio City. And basically, (laughs) Garcetti, the the mayor of Los Angeles, said the next time a bunch of people congregate without wearing masks in a large house in the hills, we're going to ask the Department of Water and Power to cut off the electricity to that house. And sure enough, a bunch of young kids who thought they were going to live forever had another big house party, and by God, Garcetti had the DWP cut off electrical power. The lights went out, the music disappeared, and everybody <laughs> went home. Um, it's funny because um, I happen to, among other things that I do, I'm, I own a, a rental building here in Cooperstown, New York, which, by the way, I don't know if you've ever been to Cooperstown or upstate New York at all, Brad, but Cooperstown's a tiny little place. We've got about a 1,000 full-time residents, and there's one traffic light. That's it, right? Nice. Um, so it's a, it's a tiny community, but I do have a little uh, in, um, investment property that I, that I run, and um, I've got a tenant in there that has de- works for the county. So I know that she has not lost her job, but she's decided because of these new restrictions that you can't evict people, she's not paying the rent. So for five months now, I haven't gotten any rent 
from uh-huh. her. And I asked about turning off the electricity because I pay for it. And they told me, no, you can't do that. You can't turn off uh-huh. the electricity. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I mean, I, I've got bills to pay, too. Exactly. I mean, that is the, the really the toughest question is to what degree do you keep the economy going right. at the risk of spreading a virus? Yeah. That is legitimately a tough question. It sure is. But re- I can tell you, JV, that there is a documentary I've seen by Alex Gibney, the terrific documentary, and a guy I've, I'm happy to say I, I know and have interviewed a couple times. And uh, his documentary about how the Trump administration ignored coronavirus is called it's under control, which is a direct where, where, quote. From where the can president. people find it's that? Under control. Where can people find that documentary? Uh, I believe that it's going to be released uh, very soon. Oh, okay. he's, he's had two great documentaries released, you know, one on top of the other. The other one was on HBO called Agents of Chaos, which is about the Trump administration's relationship with Putin, the oligarchs the GRU, and, of course, the IRA. Um, that's the Internet Research Agency, not the <laughs> Irish Republican <laughs> Army. And, of course, the way they uh, had disinformation, which, of course, swayed the last presidential election. Let's... Um, you write about some very, uh, what I would call esoteric, uh, maybe a little bit on the bizarre, a little bit on the strange. You've written a lot of stuff, and you, in our last conversation, you, you talked about how much you enjoy writing about those things. What, uh, me? You think <laughs> I'm a bizarre guy? <laughs> but it's, it's great work. But I would have to say that if you decided, and you probably will, next year you'll probably do this, if you decided to write about 2020, you'd have to write a five or six volume set to cover all the weird and the bizarre of this year. It's true. It's almost like this is the... A lot of my friends um, uh, make the same joke without knowing that the other person has already made it. I, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, 2020, it's like the apocalypse. What's next? Locusts? And everybody <laughs> keeps saying locusts because they think about the yeah. biblical ideas of apocalypse. Well, you, you don't even have to imagine it. I think we did have uh, some locusts, and they still they may be uh, crossing the uh, African continent still. I'm not sure. But I know there were reports over the summer of uh, locust problems. Well, we had mosquitoes here in, in L.A. We had a little bit of West Nile stuff going yes. on in the San Fernando Valley. And literally, you have to laugh so you don't lose your mind. It's just, what is next? But I'm obviously hopeful about the presidential election on November 3rd. Um, we have a lot of digging out we're going to have to do. Um, but I, I can see a light at the end of the tunnel, and hopefully it's not an oncoming train. <laughs> you know, you do have to laugh. And um, I love your attitude about much of this, too. Because if, you know, we have to take every all of this very, very seriously, but we have to keep things in perspective, too. And we do have to make sure that we don't drive ourselves crazy uh, yeah. with this stuff as well. So a good chuckle now and then, not a bad thing, Brad. Not a bad I thing. I agree. I agree. Um, Paul Krasner, who uh, we lost not too long ago, um, you know, one of the founders of the Yippie movement and a great political researcher. I'm glad to, to say that I knew him the last couple of years of my life. And when I got dark and I would talk about what was going on, he would make these jokes about, you know, Mitch McConnell and uh, Devin Nunes and all the people, the, the whole sick crew. Um, and and I just marvel and go, that's how this guy keeps it together. He says it to himself, it's so absurd that 
it's great to research and learn what's going on, but to some degree, you just have to have a little distance and calm down and chuckle and then deal with the misery the next day. Yeah, I think that's wise. Are you a California native? No, as a matter of fact, I am from upstate New York. Well, they say everything outside of New York City is upstate. Right. So if you go about 30 minutes uh, northwest of Manhattan, you're in Rockland County before you hit Westchester. And I grew up in a lovely little town called New City. Oh, my. I was just going to say I'm very familiar with New City. (laughs) Yes, that's. Well, first it was Stony Point, uh-huh. um, which is near West Point Academy, site of a very important Revolutionary War battle. That's where I grew up. And then by the time I was five, we were in New City, which was a beautiful little town. I had a, a good friend that I went to college who lived in New City, uh, the Deutsch family. I don't know. There might be more than one there. I don't know. But um, I visited him on several, several occasions in New City. A lot of showbiz people, JV, um, especially in the 70s and the 80s, they would be in New York, and they would have, like, a little out-of-town country house. Uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov, the dancer, Lauren Bacall, the actress. Um, so it, it has a little history around it. And actually, not to go off on another subject, but, but so too does Stony Point. There were a lot of very radical artists, like uh, John Cage oh, yeah. and some of these other guys in music who had uh, a commune in Stony Point in the mid-50s. Oh, wow. I didn't know yeah. that. Didn't know that. Let's talk about hidden history, because when, when we talked about having you come back on the program, you made, made a point of wanting to talk about this particular topic, but you, want, you know, we wanted to get in some details. But when we use the phrase hidden history, what are we talking about? I like to use that phrase other than conspiracy theory, because, look, a lot of your listeners know a lot about extraterrestrial intelligence, right? Sure. Um, and, and, of course, you know, political things like the JFK assassination and other things like that. Mm-hmm. The, there's a guy named George Lakoff, L-A-K-O-F-F, who is a linguist and he used to teach at UC Berkeley, wrote a famous book called Don't Think of an Elephant. And the reason I bring him up is Lakoff said the way that you use language to frame an argument can determine the winner of the argument without facts. So, for example, if you say, I've researched um, the appearance of extraterrestrial intelligence, and here are these sets of facts, and the other person says, yes, that's just a conspiracy theory, they are using language to negate the possibility that your research might be accurate on any level. So I don't believe in using the term conspiracy theory because it's derogatory and it has an implication that you're a nut, you're crazy, you're wearing a tinfoil hat. My attitude is hidden history is anything that most people don't know that can be confirmed. When did conspiracy theory become just how you described it? Something that, and you're absolutely right, it is now, it has now become something that defines someone who's basically offering crazy ideas or crazy explanations for something that's otherwise commonly understood to be a normal situation. When did that happen? Because, I mean, we when we talk about the JFK assassination, I think the numbers suggest that more people than not say there was a conspiracy there. So when you take that word conspiracy and then you add theory, why does yeah. that make it crazy? 
Yeah, the, pro- the, the problem isn't the word conspiracy, J.V. The problem is the word theory. Okay. Uh, and you put them, I mean, conspiracy is, is um, you know, say three people making a secret plot. Right. Okay. Whenever I used to say this, by the way, whenever people say, "Oh, that's conspiracy theory," I said, "Yeah, you know, um, yeah, the murder of Julius Caesar was a conspiracy theory. They all got together and they said, let 'Let's kill him,' right. and they did. And guess what? Shakespeare uh, wrote a play about it, and it's not a theory. It really happened, but it's a conspiracy. Um, I think actually you're right on it. I think after JFK. Um, a lot of people would talk about the JFK assassination conspiracy. And, and a lot of people, if they did their homework, learned that it was physically impossible for the number of bullets to cause the damage. And one bullet, a famous, you know, Exhibit 399, yep. would have to have dropped in midair and taken another trajectory. So whenever I talk about, say, assassinations or... or or accidental deaths that are questionable, my mind goes to the forensics first. But now we're living in an age where a chunk of the population does not want to listen to science. They have confirmation bias. I believe in this person. This person says you're, you're steeped in a conspiracy theory, so we're not going to pay any attention to the science. Well, this is what happens. You get more than 220,000 people dead in six months when you don't listen to science. And the same thing is true. We don't still know the whole story about JFK. And what doubt can there be when you look at forensics? Not, not coincidence, but forensics, for science. You know, that's the problem. We have to get back to scientific fact. We have to get back to analyzing imagery of strange things that can't exist um, according to American science that must come from somewhere else. And by the way, just to kind of close this little thing off, I think that we need as a nation to take a hard look at the Freedom of Information Act. I don't think it serves the American public. I think that the whole idea of the Freedom of Information Act is to hide the information about what the government does until all of the guilty parties are dead. Mm. You know? And then, by that time, supposedly, the future generations of America can look back and go, oh, I see, so there were mobsters in the CIA involved in, in killing JFK back in 1963. There's, there's an implied idea with the quote-unquote Freedom of Information Act and keeping things secret in archives, that you as the public are not ready for the truth. Well, my attitude is, screw you. You're not ready for reality, so you're hiding the truth because you don't want the public to know what goes on. The Freedom of Information Act shouldn't exist. We should be able to get the records immediately. I don't believe in expunging records at all. I think that we may be jumping ahead here a little bit, but I think this is a good place to bring this up. Do you, based on what you just said, based on things like the government deciding that this is not information the public can handle, at least not now, maybe someday in the future, but not now, um, was that part of the part of the many sins, let's say, yeah. of the Vietnam War? Oh, 
Absolutely. Look, um, the Vietnam War and the Iraq War have so much to teach us about how our government operates. First of all, both of those wars were predicated on lies. The Vietnam War on the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and if you look at uh, Errol Morris's great documentary, The Fog of War, you come to understand um, why the U.S. government lied about what happened in the Tonkin Gulf. And the Iraq War, we already know, in fact, Powell, um, Colin Powell has already gone on the record and said, well, you know, I said that we had proof of weapons of mass destruction, and actually we didn't quite have it. My attitude is, you could have been the greatest hero in the history of the United States of America if you had gone up at the United Nations and said, uh, the Bush administration wants geopolitically to take control of that area of the globe because of gas and oil, and they are manufacturing consent to invade Iraq, but there are no provable weapons of war. I know that I'm going to be removed from my office for saying this, so I am quitting because I know I'm going to be fired, and I do not support this government in its attempt to illegally and immorally invade Iraq. I'll tell you something. Half the country would have voted for Colin Powell for president, maybe more than half. He certainly would have had plenty of people in Washington, D.C. who would have offered him a job, but he missed his opportunity for historical greatness. The um, Vietnam War, uh, as people started to become aware of the lies the government was telling the public through generally the evening news, Walter Cronkite, Cronkite and others, he was the leading anchor at the time, um, that, is that, was that the turning point for what we would consider to have prior to that to have been uh, American uh, patriotism and, and support of the government at all costs versus what we saw after that in the form of protests and questions and demonstrations. Uh, was it was it the revelation that the, that the public was being lied to? Well, unfortunately, it wasn't then. What we need to do is narrow the window between when the government tells us that we have to go to war and disseminating the truth about what's going on. Now, with the Iraq War and Colin Powell's revelation, um, it was a a smaller window of time Mm -hmm. than when I think basically almost everybody by now would say that Vietnam, except for the most pro-military. Pro-military people, when you talk to them, they say we could have won the war because of superior military power. And that's probably true. But the more important, again, I go back to Lakoff and framing the argument. The argument isn't whether the United States of America had more military power than a small country in Southeast Asia. The question is whether we created a war because of geopolitical interest based on a lie. And if everybody knew that, I think uh, the future would have been different. But uh, the, the final thing about that is, you asked me, uh, J.V., um, what's the turning point? I think it was a number of turning points. I think Walter Cronkite on national news, the most trusted man in America, saying, mm-hmm. you know, even, even though we did what was right, I'm paraphrasing him, we, we did the basically the decent thing, we need to leave and say that we gave it our best effort. 
uh, but the war is unwinnable. I also think that the Tet Offensive, in which we learned that uh, there was so much infiltration of Viet Cong sympathizers in South Vietnam, right. plus the level of corruption we were learning about right. in South Vietnam, the, the unwillingness of the, of the South Vietnamese army to operate, and then other things like, oh, the horrible Phoenix program where between 25 and 40,000 civilians were murdered who were suspected but never proven of being spies. I think all that stuff around 68 started to come to a head. The real tragedy is 1968, 1973 is when we started leaving. So even though the direction of U.S. attitude about the war in Vietnam changed in 68, five more years of bloodshed. It's really remarkable to think about it, and it's also remarkable to look at the parallels between Vietnam and the Iraq War. Uh, not just the fact that it, that the justification was uh, came from lies, basically, but also just the 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 difficulty. Had we, as you quoted, had we won the war, we never would have been able to win the peace, and that was clearly one of the problems with Iraq. We couldn't win the peace. You know, part of the problem too, and this this is actually. Really fascinating. It's why I love writing about hidden history, J.V., is when the U.S. government goes to war, you see military experts, you see politicians talking, you never see historians on Fox or CNN or MSNBC or your local news network. If we had had historians, think about this, if we had had historians on television, on the three major networks, when we got involved in Vietnam, they would have told us that Vietnam has a 1,000-year history of being invaded and eventually driving the invaders out. There's actually an interesting parallel between Afghanistan, which had the Soviets and the United yep. States in their fighting, and inevitably both major powers had to withdraw. So if we understand historically what has happened and the will of the people to outlast people who invade them, maybe we can make better decisions about what we do militarily and, of course, in terms of trade and, you know, what other relationships we have with other governments. That's a great point. Are secrets by the government an essential part of winning a war? And I and the reason I ask that is because I know that in World War II, there were a lot of things the American public weren't told. And in many cases, those things didn't come out until many years after the war. Um, but it seemed to be a little bit more justified, or maybe I'm just looking at it the wrong way. Well, are you asking, in essence, whether World War II was a more justifiable war? No, no, not necessarily. I'm just asking if if the nation is at war, does the government have the right in any way and I'm not talking about military strategy and, and you know, specifics about combat strength or whatever, right. because that's right. stuff the enemy shouldn't have. Right. However, but just, you know, reporting reporting casualties and these things that, that really, from my understanding of the Vietnam War and the media debacle that uh, that ensued, which rightfully so, the American public was disgusted with, um, how much of that was going on in World War II, say, that we... We didn't have the same reaction as, as, a, as a public at the time. Well, I think that this question 
is about, again, if I may, Vietnam and Iraq, and mm-hmm. the difference mm-hmm. in the way the media covered the wars. There are many wonderful books and documentaries about the ability of the American press to go to a unit in Vietnam and say, I understand that you're going to fly some choppers in and there's, there's going to be a battle in this location. Can I hop on your chopper and join you um, for coverage for my venue, my, my newspaper, my magazine, my, my radio network? And basically, journalists in Vietnam could go anywhere in the field of battle. What happened is it was, it was so insidiously brilliant, the Bush administration decided that you would have embedded reporters. That means that um, you traveled with the military only to where they allowed you to go, and otherwise you were not allowed to cover any other stories. Well, if your life... If you're, very, if you're an American and you're with the American press and your life is dependent upon the military protecting you and they don't allow you to go anywhere else and they don't allow you to write anything negative about what the military is doing, I'm not talking about giving away locations, as you said, that means that your coverage of the war is inaccurate because you're ignoring certain things, not just atrocities, but sometimes in war, people have bad tactics. Sure. You know, you don't have to give away the store, so to speak. You don't have to betray what the military is doing in order to say, this was a mistake, or there are more men who have died in this battle than our uh, country is basically reporting, which went on, of course, in Vietnam. Right. More people, you know, were killed supposedly in the Viet Cong than actually existed, right. and that and that's when you know things started really heating up in terms of uh, American attitude. I I don't know what to tell you about World War II because it was to stop fascism, right? And I think I think we were. Look, you can choose many moments in U.S. history where we were at our greatest, where we did amazing things. And I think Americans should be incredibly proud of what we did in World War II. I agree. And, and, and what the Allied forces did to stop Japan and Germany and fascism. It's hard, to, it's hard to criticize that. I don't know if I could have been a pacifist then. I, I may well um, criticize Vietnam and Iraq, but that war was incredibly noble. And we made incredible sacrifices. Women were working in factories, right? Yep. yep. Um, so my attitude is, if you're truly patriotic, why can't you wear a goddamn mask to stop the spread of a coronavirus? What would you have done in World War II? Would you have said, oh, no, I'm not going to ration just because you want to stop Nazis and Jap- Japanese <laughs> forces overseas? That's really annoying. Don't tell me how to live. <laughs> what, what American would have said that during World War II? Right. Well, we are in a war, but this time it's against microbes. You know, I, I, fi- I, I find that interesting, too, because I've often thought, um, and, and I've always been a World War II buff, so I've studied it. I've, I've uh, watched a lot of uh, documentaries about various parts of the war, and my grandfather was in World War II, and I always fascinated at his stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and my son, you know, my son is now 24, but I, I remember when he would complain about taking out the garbage, you know, at 20 years old. And I, and I would think to myself... Do you understand that that men your age were storming the beaches at Normandy into machine gun fire, and you're complaining about taking the garbage out? 
I mean, brilliant. When you, you have think... some major parenting <laughs> skills there, Johnson, but, I have to tell you. But when you think about that and you think about what th- those men and women did, yeah. um, it's really awe-inspiring. And you know, to to call them the greatest generation is is a, a, is 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 only only touches the surface of what they did. Hey, listen, my father. At one point, when I lived in uh, New City in New York, mm-hmm. he worked in a tool and dye factory um, in New Jersey, just across the border. Um, and what he was asked to do during World War II was to sign a security clearance because they turned that tool and dye factory into a ballistics factory. They were making bullets for the Second World War. I mean, Americans don't thank God, don't understand how, how you have to sacrifice and right. change all of society when you are fighting an existential threat. And I suspect that a lot of people who may have been around during World War II might get what's going on right. with coronavirus more than people who did not have to experience that level of sacrifice and danger. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't think... I'm trying to think in my lifetime, with the exception of maybe the gas shortages in the 70s, there really has been no significant hardship. Um, You know, I know other people have experienced hardship for various reasons, whether it's been natural disasters or whatever. But as a population, Mm -hmm. we haven't had any real sacrifice that we've had to make. We've been able to have our cake and eat it, too, for a very, very long time, Brad. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And it's it's a major shift, but I also, you know, I'm not also, uh, I'm not solely a guy who just kind of looks on the dark side because I see positive things coming out of this. Um, we've we have spent too much time since March of this year fighting with each other, yeah, and not doing what is best for our entire country. And I want us to spend more time looking at science, not to politicize science. That is a terrible mistake. You know, left and right can have legitimate conversations about what they want to do and how they want to accomplish it and what the most important issues are. But when you politicize science and you, and you put into question what is factual in the scientific world, you're basically creating chaos. And there's, there's, Trump has used it brilliantly, but very destructively. So what do you and we and we need to get back to a period where we go left and right. We can argue, and how much are you going to spend for that? Right. And are we going to pass that bill? That's fine. That's part of the natural process of governing. But you cannot, in an emergency, politicize science. I agree, but I, I have to ask you this question: When you've got scientists that disagree how do you handle that um that seems to be more and more common as well well we don't have a lot of scientists disagreeing with each other i mean we're learning about the coronavirus as we go right exactly but but there isn't like 50 percent of the scientists the scientific community saying yeah wear masks and you know try not to meet in, in large groups and other 50 percent saying forget it Right. No, you, that's not the case. Right? So that's not that's not the problem with the coronavirus. The fact is that most. I'll give you a perfect um, analogy of this, JV. It's global warming. 
Now, remember what I said about Lakoff and using language yep. to create your argument not based on fact at all. So we used to talk about global warming, mm-hmm. you know, CO2, we're getting more and more record temperatures. And somehow we changed that phrase from global warming to climate change. That's right. Climate change sounds like, oh, I better get the sweater out, you know, the leaves are <laughs> starting to fall. No, this is an existential threat, and people are starting to slowly understand it. But the fact of the matter is that you're not going to see a lot of argument anywhere in the world among scientists about global warming. And interestingly enough, the United States often avoids those conferences because it's going to affect, and I don't have an answer for this, it's going to affect our economy. We're going to have less buying power. Right. But guess what? Sometimes you have to tighten your belt, especially when the future of human life on a planet is being threatened. There's a line in the movie, I'm sure you're familiar with the film, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's one of my favorite films of all time, and I watch it every holiday season for sure. Um, But there's a line where old man Potter, um, that's the way he's described in the film, not not my description of him. Old man Potter says, um, he's talking about the residents of, uh, of the town. And he says, he, he mentions the phrase thrifty working class. There's a thrifty working class. And it made me think about the fact that at, at, when I was growing up, um, I remember my parents who, who were struggled. They struggled a lot. And both of my parents worked many, several jobs. Um, but they always work to save a little bit, put a little away. And they taught me how to do that. Put a little bit away. Always spend a little less than you make, regardless of what you have to sacrifice to do that. Just do it. Um, yeah. Have we lost that? I mean, this is kind of off topic, but I think, I think there's some real wisdom in that. Well, one of the things that has shocked me the most, and I'm by no means wealthy as a freelance writer and a historian and an educator, But one of the things that has shocked me, that is a fact, is the huge number of American citizens who don't have even $1,000 saved in case they have an emergency. Right. Now, I don't know. That's a deeper discussion. You can say, well, they didn't save or they don't have enough money based on their standard of living and their expenses to put away money. But that... You know, we're supposed to be this great economic power, which we are. There's something wrong if we spend too much money on health care and we don't have the ability, no matter how much money we make in, in the middle class, to be ready for a medical emergency. There's no reason it should be that way, and the only reason that it is that way is because of greed at the very top of the pyramid. We're talking tonight with Brad Schreiber. Brad, you've got uh, a bunch of books, and they cover a variety of topics. We've spent uh, time last time you were on the program talking about music is power. We talk about talked about revolutions end, but you've got others. We're going to go to break here, and when we come back, I want to talk about how information is disseminated in, in the year 2020 and moving forward. But before I do that, where can people find your books? Well, my website is bradschreiber.com or brash cyber.com. Either one will get you to the same website. And there are links in the book section um, to all the stuff, as well as, you know, videos. I've got, I've got a little lecture I did on Music is Power that I posted on the website, which is fun. And um, 
people will find links to Amazon through the site. Brad, we've seen a real shift in the last couple of years, especially. Um, Facebook has been around, I think, since 2004, somewhere in that neighborhood. But only recently has it become what many people would be considered uh, their primary source of information. Do you see any problem with a company like Facebook or it could be Twitter or it could be even Google and YouTube becoming the conduits by which most Americans are getting their information? I do. I think that it's both a problem with the corporations and to a certain degree, we're, we need to ask people to be more critical in their thinking. For example, in 2016, when there were fallacious stories on Facebook um, that affected the election uh, between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, um, if someone had been well-informed, they would have looked at a story on Facebook and said, well, I've never heard of this source. It's not right. the Washington Post. It's not the L.A. Times. Right. You know, it's... It's not somebody that we normally can vet and say you have to be responsible for disseminating correct news or you will be sued. No, it's a website. Right. But this goes to confirmation bias, which is something that we all have to fight. You and I have our, our belief systems, and we like when we see something that confirms it. But we have to use critical thinking when we um, come up against facts that seem uncomfortable and say, well, maybe that's so. What's the source of this story? And of course, you know, recently a lot of, you know, Zuckerberg and other people, you know, had to testify in Washington, D.C. And because of their attitude of, oh, no, we're just, you know, we're not really a publisher. We're just allowing people to voice their concerns and their beliefs, which is totally irresponsible. You now see on Twitter and on Facebook certain uh, quote-unquote facts about the coronavirus and other things being taken down or being flagged because they are provably and demonstrably wrong. Well, if we'd had that sort of oversight on the Internet in 2016, who knows how the election would have turned out. Does that start to cross the line of something we talked about earlier? Let's say, for example, that after the JFK, after the Warren Commission uh, uh, gave its report, uh, which concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone gunman, let's assume we had Facebook back then and we had the Internet back then and some people started to publish things that said, hey, this is this is this is not what happened. There was another there's a, another gunman. There was the grassy knoll there were all the you know, whatever, whatever the theories were. Do we run the risk of shutting down voices like that, that actually are are presenting information and ideas that are worthy of consideration? Whether they're completely accurate or not, they open a discussion that's kind of important, don't they? They do, and I'm really glad you brought this up, because I was thinking about our time on the air here, and I came up with four points that are really important to understanding the challenges of publishing controversial but provable historical facts. The first thing that happens is the author or the network or the company or the institution has to do good sourcing. You can't rely upon a rumor or what you want to believe true. You actually have to have a source. So that's the responsibility of, say, an author um, who's written a book. Now, 
the next thing you do is you want to have access and you have to go to a publisher. But what happens if what you're writing about, and I'm not even going to give you an example, I want this to be open in the minds of everybody, left, right, or center. What if what you want to write about is true and provable and the government doesn't want it published? Well, if you can't get access to a major publisher or a television show, who is going to see it? Let's say you do get access. Now you're on the third level. The third level is the reaction of the mainstream media to what has been published or broadcast. Does the mainstream media say, well, that's very interesting. We never knew that fact. Huh, that says something very negative. We should look into it. Or does the mainstream media say, it's conspiracy theory, or we don't believe that, or this guy's a, a nut. You see? So that's another layer that you have to get through. And then finally, let's say you get through those three layers, JV. The final layer is the audience itself. Mm-hmm. How many people are truly interested in knowing something critical of your government? So you may have, the, you may have a great publisher, and you may have the media go, wow, this is astounding. This is great sourcing, great research. And then the audience goes, eh, I don't want to read about it. I want to see a cat video or, <laughs> or whatever. Right. So, so when you come to that understanding that there are four, four kind of layers to succeed in disseminating unpleasant truths, you realize how difficult it, it, it really is, even in a democracy. I'm going to admit something that's a little embarrassing for me. Um, this, and I don't even know what it is. It's is it a group, Brad, or is it a movement, or is it an idea? This QAnon thing, I don't really understand it. Well, you know, QAnon is a fringe group that that again confirmation bias. I don't like what's happening in my country. I don't like the other political party. Hey, I don't like the other Americans. So I believe in, in something that says that the other side is truly reprehensible. They're involved in pedophilia. They're, they're, they're just completely repugnant because I'm afraid. I, I have a very small worldview. I don't have critical thinking going. I'm not willing to stand back and question facts. I'm just frightened. Mm-hmm. And that's why I can buy into QAnon or Pizzagate, which came before it, in which uh, you know the Republican Party was suggesting that uh, you know there was a pizza parlor where you know they had you know ritual sex abuse of children, and a guy actually showed up there with a gun because he thought it was true, and got got himself arrested. Um, so again, it's it's a, it's partly the responsibility of our government to say these things can be proved. These things cannot, but it's also the responsibility of the citizenry to say, you know what, I can be wrong. Maybe you can prove me right. What are your, what does your research say? You know, it's not the end of the world if you have to change your opinion. But what's going on in this country and has been going on in the last four years is so disturbing that fringe elements say we don't like your set of facts. In yeah. fact, we're going to threaten you death threats. There is no reason to threaten someone's life because they have a different political opinion. Oh, I, that, I, I agree. That does, with... not represent, 
democracy in any form. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I'm so glad you said that because I think that that is one of the greatest tragedies of, I don't even know where to point, I'm not going to point fingers. I'm just going to say that's a great tragedy and we're seeing it all around us. And again, it's on all sides and it's coming from every direction. I don't understand that. I have people, I know people that won't talk to other people because of their political affiliation. And, I, and, and I'm in Cooperstown, New York, with a thousand people. The town is yeah. too small to hate people because they <laughs> happen to think differently than you. I don't get it. Yeah. Well, part of the problem I notice is when, when I get into political discussions with someone who has a very different view from me, mm-hmm. if they stay to what they know that is provable fact, I never get into an argument, I get into a discussion. Right. But when people bring animosity, name-calling, or just <laughs> generally attack people right. for how they look or mm-hmm. what they think of them, but they don't really explain... Like, like, here's a thought experiment. We don't have to go off on this because I know we're running out of time. But, but just, just for an experiment for your listeners, mm-hmm. no matter whether you're left or right... What is it that people were so angry about with Hillary Clinton? What is it about her that she actually did? Not what you thought of her tone of voice or being a woman or Bill Clinton, you know, cheating on her or anything. What is it she actually did that created such venom in this country? Now, you may find out things about Hillary Clinton that she's actually done, which are reprehensible. But when I talk to people, why don't you like Hillary? They can't come up with facts. And again, I'm not defending her. In many ways, I think she ran a terrible campaign. Um, but it's interesting. Check yourself, you know? <laughs> What's that old saying? Check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> Do your thought experiment. Epistemology, the study of why you believe something. Why is it that you believe that Hillary Clinton is negative? What does she actually stand for? Maybe you do the research and you find out I'm, I'm very right and very left and she's a centrist and she doesn't represent what I believe in. That's a, that's a legitimate complaint. Right. Yeah, I think that's, that's also true on, on uh, all sides. Uh, I, would you call it uh, confirmation bias? What was it that you... Confirmation bias is when you seek out... Yeah. The, look, if I only watch MSNBC and I don't care what else is going on in the world, I'm just as guilty as the person who only watches Fox News and doesn't care about anything else in the world. You have to be willing to find facts and have them disprove certain things in your belief system. doesn't make you a bad person. doesn't even have to change your political outlook. Right. But every once in a while, we don't have all the facts. Let's uh, because you pointed out that we are going to run out of time, and we are, and it, it just it's just the way this goes when you and I start talking about it's this fun. stuff. It, it is real fun. It is. Let's talk about Jimi Hendrix a bit because when you talk about the Vietnam War and you talk about that part of American history, one of the bright spots is uh, the music that came out of that uh, time. And mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix was a giant, and I think in many ways only now starting to be appreciated for the talent that he was. Uh, did you take an interest in Jimmy prior to writing the book, or did the process of writing the book uh, create your love I, for Jimmy? I always loved him, and I was, uh, just to give you a, a roundabout sense of how old I am without actually telling you, um, I was uh, just entering my teens when I heard on my radio in the San Francisco Bay Area um, third stone from the sun. Mm. And I went, 
this is unlike any music I have ever heard. The lyrics, the ideas, the, the f- controlled feedback of the guitar. So when, you know, Hendrix historian Steve Roby said, you know, I got a big um, agent in New York, but he says, I don't know how to write. Do you want to co-write this with me and split the money? Um, I did come to love him and understand more about his personality. And, of course, in the process, I believe scientifically, based on forensics, that he was killed by his manager, uh, Mike Jeffrey. Um, John Bannister is the name of the surgeon in London who saw Jimmy, saw his lungs were filled with red wine, as well as nine very strong German sedatives, and said somebody suicided this guy. Really? There is no way that he could have forced red wine so far down his gullet that it bypassed his stomach to this degree and ended up in his lungs. Well, you don't have to know everything that's going on to cover up embarrassing facts. That's the thing that people often say is, oh, how could JFK have been murdered by, you know, uh, more than one person? Do you know how many people would have to be involved? You don't need a lot of people involved. What you need are a lot of people who are... who want the status quo and are afraid of being embarrassed by not finding the real truth and simply cover up to protect themselves. That's what happened in the London hospital when John Bannister said Jimi Hendrix was murdered. I don't know who by, but forensically, medically, it's impossible. And the London, basically, the London hospital dismissed Bannister and said, you're a nut. It's a conspiracy theory. And I'm glad that I published Becoming Jimi Hendrix for lots of reasons, but one of them is so that future generations will know that he was killed and he was not irresponsible and, and took too many drugs. Yeah, drugs. so, so the, the, the official uh, version of his death was a drug overdose. Is that right, Brad? Yeah, they, they claim that he overdosed. Now, people knew Jimmy said he was not suicidal uh, about anything. Sometimes he was depressed. But at that point in his career, he was afraid of Mike Jeffrey. Mike Jeffrey having been, oh, it's it's a long story, but Mike Jeffrey is very nefarious. If you want to read about him, his last name is spelled J-E-F-F-E-R-Y. He was in the British Secret Service. He had two sets of books. He ripped off money from other rock groups he represented. He was a very dark guy, and Jimmy was afraid of him. But you combine the circumstantial with the forensic, and there's really no doubt that Mike Jeffrey and other parties unknown went to that London hotel room and took him out. By the way, um, I think I may have mentioned this before. There's two really good reasons in Mike Jeffrey's head that he did it. One is he wanted to financially would get the whole catalog of Jimmy's recordings. The other is that he had, like an idiot, borrowed American mob money to build Jimmy's studio, Electric Lady Studios in Manhattan. And Jimmy wanted to get rid of Mike Jeffrey, and Mike Jeffrey was thinking, what's going to happen to me if Jimmy abandons me? And the mob goes, where's the money that we loaned you? Right. So that drove him, a guy who had already been in Secret Service in, in Britain, to desperation. When you started to investigate this, to research it, to look at the facts, um, did it take you long to point the finger or was it obvious from the start i know i learned about all this stuff in working with steve roby mm-hmm. steve roby doesn't believe 
in what I just said about Jimmy. I think Steve's a wonderful guy and a very bright guy and incredibly knowledgeable. He knows more than 99.9% of the people on the face of the earth about Jimi Hendrix. But it's confirmation bias. It's like, no, I think Jimmy was irresponsible, which he was. He didn't look at his contracts. He screwed up. He was naive and childlike. But no, he did not accidentally overdose. And that was, that was the finding, the official finding in London. Is there um, an opportunity? Has anybody uh, from uh, maybe a private investigator perspective or even law enforcement looked into this beyond uh, and, and not just accepted uh, what was fed to the public as the reason for his death? I think people who have deep, deep dived, deep, deep <laughs> dived into this sort of thing mm-hmm. have probably found out these facts. People who really care about them, you know, most people, they go, I really like a band or a rock star. I'm going to read a book about them. Right. Then there are people who are, you know, really driven, and they read everything they can find. And those people will come up and find these facts uh, about Jimmy. Um, interestingly enough, I was just recently contacted, J.V., by a guy who's done an amazing amount of work on Natalie Wood's death, her drowning oh, yeah. death. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I sort of have to sign an NDA because I might be working with him. Oh, wow. But I can tell you that while he, it's not open and shut, there's a lot of strong medical evidence that suggests that she didn't get a lot of bruises from falling into the water, that she was beaten. Really? Yes. Now, accident, homicide, nobody knows. But this guy provided me some some documents that make me think, you know, I understand why they reopened Natalie Wood's case. They still don't have a conclusion. But, you know, it's not circumstantial. It's scientific. It's forensic. And that's the thing you have to to really concentrate on when you get into these kinds of cases. And, of course, um, when we start talking about the Natalie Wood case, we're, we're talking about Robert Wagner. Mm-hmm. We are. And... So circumstantial things would be, um, you know, things about differences between Natalie and Wagner, arguments, the fact they've been married twice, um, uh, you know, the fact that she made a lot more money than he did. Um, You know, it's like watching a good mystery. When you watch a, uh, read a, a book or watch a great movie that's fictional about a murder mystery, as you explore it, you learn more and more details. They don't give away the final detail, of course, until the third act, or you ruin the whole movie. But a good mystery is one that keeps giving you, and sometimes turns you away from the facts, and then brings you back to them. And part of the critical thinking that goes into writing about these kinds of cases is to say, wherever the facts go, I follow them, even if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, we've had a question scroll through our chat room a few times, so I, I want to ask it. And yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot, though, but have you ever looked into the death of Sam Cooke? Yes, as a matter of fact, I have. And I think I think based on what I've read, and I, I am no, no expert on this, there are plenty of other people who must know more, but he was basically at this Hacienda Motel, in, in El Segundo, 
and I believe he was with um, either a prostitute or some female fan. And I think based on the testimony of the woman who was the manager, Cook ran into her office looking for this woman who he claimed had ripped her off. The sad irony is that the motel had been ripped off itself in the recent past. So this woman had a gun under the counter to protect herself in case somebody else tried to rip her off. And Sam Cooke, she didn't come in thinking, wow, there's this pop star, you know, who's barely got his pants on, and I wonder what's going on. She reacted like, here's this great crazy guy who's demanding, where's this woman? And she just reacted basically in panic and pulled out the gun and shot him. That's kind of what, I don't know if that's what happened, but based on what I've read, that seems the likeliest explanation. And it's just based on misunderstanding. Well, um, I want to go back to uh, Jimi Hendrix in the few minutes we've got left here. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about his music. Why was it so extraordinary? Ah. Well, I, in Music is Power, I had to give him a chapter, not just because I had written a previous book on him, but because of his importance. Um, I think I probably have mentioned to you and other people when I talk about him that the phrase... Um, not necessarily stone, but beautiful, is, is really important because it came in a moment in, in the psychedelic music movement where there were lots of, lots of songs about drugs and lots of experimentation, not only with drugs, but with the way you created music, which was very exciting yeah. sonically. Mm-hmm. And imagine one of the most popular people in rock and roll basically saying in the lyrics, in a very surreal song, Are You Experienced? You know, yeah, you can take drugs if you want to get experienced, if you want to go to a higher level of consciousness, but that's not the only way to do it. And in some ways, Jimmy was saying, people need to elevate their consciousness in order to make the world better. You can't just have young people taking drugs going, we're going to improve society, because you've got all these other layers of society that push back. So are you experienced not only an amazing sounding song is telling the people of the United States you want to deal with racism and poverty and the Vietnam War, you all have to start respecting each other. You all have to start communicating better with each other. And it, and that's the that's part of the experience. That's part of the high of being a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, at least these are the things that I drew from it. So, you know, not only that, he could play any style of music. He could flip a guitar that was strung uh, left-handed upside down and play it right-handed. I mean, he, he was truly a musical genius. And he didn't notate. He would hear stuff, and he could play it back for you no matter how complex. Wow. And he overcame such a difficult um, upbringing in Seattle. Um, which is part of becoming Jimi Hendrix. You add all those things together, and then you have this sweet, innocent guy whose personality is so warm and, and, and so willing to meet people and be open to new ideas that you really basically come up with one of the most remarkable people in the history of pop music. Now, he was uh, kind of honing his craft, if you will, in New York City, and he ended up going to London. What took him to London? Well, um... Partly, Mike Jeffrey, 
who was um, working with Chaz Chandler. Chaz Chandler had just left the animals, and there's an amazing story in Becoming Jimi Hendrix, how he bumps into um, a woman who invites him to see Jimi. Of course, nobody knows who Jimi is. Right. And basically, Chaz Chandler was thinking about doing a new version of the song, Hey Joe. And when he was invited to hear Jimi for the first time in the Cafe Wa in Greenwich Village, he buys a milkshake, he sits down with, with his friend, Jimmy goes on stage, and he opens with his version of Hey Joe. <laughs> and Chaz Chandler is so stunned that he drops the milkshake in his lap. And he goes up afterwards to Jimmy, goes, I'm leaving the animals, I'm going into management, and I wanted to do a version of Hey Joe, and your version's amazing. We, I have to represent you. And basically brought him to London where people were ready for him. America was not ready for Jimi Hendrix in 1965. What was it about America not being ready? Was it was it racial? Was it the style of music? Was it um, the, the, the stage show? What about Jimi Hendrix in 1965 was America not ready for? Well, J.V., I think you nailed it with the first two. Um, nobody was playing guitar quite like that. I, right. I think the shortest version of explaining this, although it's not the complete version, it's multifaceted, is Jimmy went up to Harlem, and he imagine what Jimmy does in a small Harlem club, and those guys were looking for smooth R&B, you know, the Isley Brothers. Right. And they were like, the quote from one of the black club owners in Harlem is, just pack up all that noise and take it downtown. <laughs> and downtown meant Greenwich Village, where those crazy crazy kids might dig it. And, you know, some people liked it in, in Greenwich Village, but the music industry wasn't ready for it. Not in 1965. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 1964, there was still a transition going on. Of course, the Beatles had landed. However, you know, there was still Pat Boone, and, and you know, that type of popular music was still uh, dominating much of the airtime on radio stations, so I can see how that would have been quite... And the uh, Exactly. And the U.K., you know, basically, um, there were so many groups like the Rolling Stones and Eric Burden, all these people who loved the black musical idiom of America mm -hmm. and loved R&B and Chuck Berry and, and all of that stuff and loved soulful, bluesy electric guitar. So, you know, you're listening. Imagine if you're in, in Britain in 1965-66 and you love that kind of music and you're listening to Eric Clapton, and you're going, wow, this is really soulful and really cool. And then Jimi Hendrix with all these clothes and these amazing <laughs> uh, sounds and these amazing lyrics shows up. Everybody in the rock music establishment in the U.K. within three months fell in love with them and would travel around London, you know? The Stones, the Beatles, Eric Burden, Clapton cream over and over again these people would interact and go oh let's go see jimmy again because they had never experienced anything like it and then of course he comes back in 67 to the monterey um, pop festival which is maybe one of the most uh, everybody always talks about woodstock but in many ways monterey pop i think was more important because it introduced janice joplin right. and Jimi hendrix to uh the whole united states was it was it paul mccartney uh or one of the Rolling Stones, who who got him involved oh, with Monterey? Oh, you got it right, J.V., the yeah. first one. Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney yeah. 
said, oh, yeah, you know, you should check out this guy. He's really quite amazing. <laughs> I can't do a liver Budlian accent, but, but basically, you know, he brought the guys who were organizing Monterey Pop to, uh, to understand that Jimi Hendrix was somebody you had to absolutely book. And um, that was a whirlwind tour. You know, literally it was about three months. Jimmy also went um, to Scandinavia, and he went to France. But um, then he came back to Britain, and everybody was just nuts about him. And finally, you know, America was ready for him. And Are You Experience, ironically, I think, is still my favorite album of his, even though it was only the first one. And he went on to do a lot of other experimentation. But it had everything. It had blues. It had you know, gutsy, you know, danceable fire, you know, it had the psychedelia of, are you experienced? It had everything. It's an amazing story. Brad, um, we've, we've reached the end of another show and we've still not covered everything that we need to. So as you know, I'll be <laughs> contacting you. I try to talk as fast <laughs> as possible, JV. I love talking with you and then your questions and your thoughts are, are always a joy to respond to. So, you know, big ups to you and to Slick Eddie. Well, thank you. We enjoy having you here, and I love our conversation as well. Let people know where they can get the books one more time. Yeah, bradschreiber.com or brashcyber.com. Um, you can see links to the Amazon websites for all my books and see some fun video and, and audio interviews and, and stuff like that as well. I have a couple little surprises you might enjoy, and, and um, I would welcome emails from many of your listeners. Terrific. Look forward to having you back real soon, Brad. Thank you so much, J.V. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.